People often ask me how I got my kids to be such healthy eaters. And the truth is that one of the best things I did was bring them in the kitchen with me to cook. And research actually shows that kids who learn how to cook, eat more fruits and vegetables, are more willing to try new foods and have healthier diets overall. If you don't know how to cook or don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The course, which was created by a mom of four and former teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they even made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up today. We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Plant-based diets have become trendy in recent years, but during the pandemic, Americans were purchasing plant-based food at a rapid pace and interest soared. So whether you're vegetarian, vegan, or simply trying to get more veggies on your kid's plate, plant-based eating has a ton of benefits. It's not about being perfect, but where can we add more plant-based foods, knowing that obviously so many of those foods are going to be rich 
in these micronutrients. And hopefully also that will crowd out some of the ultra processed foods that just tend to be so, you know, prolific in the, in the diet currently. That's Alex Caspero, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, creator of the award-winning website, Delish Knowledge, co-founder of Plant-Based Juniors and a best-selling author. We'll talk about what research shows about plant-based eating, how to get your kids to eat more vegetables, and which supplements you may need. Plus, Alex talks about her favorite quick and easy meal ideas, how to eat plant-based on a budget, and how to navigate Thanksgiving. There's a ton of information in this episode, and I think you're going to love this interview as much as I did. Well, Alex, welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about your story and your background as a registered dietitian nutritionist and and how you came to start Plant-Based Juniors. Yeah, you know, I always joke. I mean, I love food and I grew up in a family that loved food, so I feel like it's no surprise to anyone uh, that I ended up as a dietitian or in this career path, you know, in, in some way. Um, I always joke that we're the family that talks about what we're going to have for, for dinner at breakfast. So, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like it was just sort of in, in the cards that I was going to end up either in some sort of culinary aspect or nutrition aspect. But when I was a senior in high school, I actually worked as like a, a dance instructor at this local weight loss camp. And it's sort of a, a weird place, but I, I loved it. I loved what the doctors were doing. I felt like I was really learning about nutrition uh, for the first time. Now, granted, it was weight loss nutrition, but I was really sort of being exposed to to different ideas and sort of these individuals who just studied nutrition full time. And I really, you know, knew from that moment on that this was sort of what I what I wanted to do. So. Uh, went on, uh, became a dietitian, and uh, <laughs> when I was in college, I was dating this like I call him a meathead uh, boyfriend, <laughs> but that's exactly what he was. You know, he was competing for like bodybuilding competitions, and he would wake up in the middle of the night and just eat like cans of tuna and a lot of chicken. And you know, when we broke up uh, my senior year of college you know, I feel like some girls change their hair after breakup. And I was just like so grossed out by meat after that. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. I'm kind of I'm done with you and I'm done with your like meathead ways. And it sounds so silly, but that was really sort of the catalyst for taking on a vegetarian diet at that time. Uh, My girlfriend, I remember the moment that we broke up, uh, the morning after we broke up, she brought me over a cup of coffee and the book uh, Skinny Bitch, uh-huh. which is like, you know, there's there's a lot of errors in that book, but it obviously is really promotes like a, a plant based diet. And I read it that morning and I was like, OK, this feels really good. So that was, you know, sort of my my plant based journey. You know, a lot of people, I think, have really inspirational stories and I just have a breakup. But it's <laughs> it's the truth. And then. You know, in grad school, I was learning a little bit more about nutrition and sort of, you know, delving into more of my own diet, really cooking a lot and, you know, taking like my my family's very Italian Danish recipes and trying to make them more plant based. And, you know, really, that's been, what, 15 years now. So uh, slowly sort of since then, I was eating less and less dairy, less and less eggs. And, you know, I consider myself to be predominantly plant-based. So I still occasionally will eat some cheese and some eggs. But for the most part, I eat a, a pretty plant-exclusive diet. 
And so how did you meet Whitney English and come up with this idea for plant-based juniors? Yeah. So Whitney and I actually met at a conference like a decade ago. Uh, She was an entertainment journalist at the time for the E-Network. And I was a dietitian and we just really hit it off. We, uh, We went to breakfast one morning and just ended up like talking for hours and sort of became like online friends, if you will. And, you know, kind of stayed in touch every now and then through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. And then we both were pregnant around the same time. Uh, and we started just sort of talking to each other a little bit more. You know, hey, I know you're you're plant based. What do you think about this study or what are you going to do about this? And sort of like bouncing questions and ideas off each other. And, you know, I think it was sometime in the middle of that. We both looked at each other and said, OK. If we are both dietitians with master's degrees and are having a hard time sort of figuring out some of the recommendations here and having a hard time sort of like taking some of the studies and trying to figure out what that actually means for for us, we know that other parents are likely in the same boat. And that's really sort of the why of why plant-based seniors was started was we just kind of figured, okay, let's sort of share with other parents, some of the things that we are are learning, you know, at that point, I've been a dietitian for a decade. So I feel like I had a lot of experience with various populations and just sort of trying to, to help parents who either want to raise their kids, you know, fully vegan, vegetarian, predominantly plant-based, or even just flexitarian, you know, we, we welcome all eaters, but not really sort of having an evidence-based place they could go. Yeah, that's great. And so what can people find at, at your website and in your community? Yeah. So, you know, we like I said, we we really try to be super inclusive. Um, There is nothing I hate more than someone, you know, saying they want to eat more plant based and feeling like they have to, you know, pass all of these tests in order to be accepted into various communities. I feel like there is room for all of us and we really want to welcome sort of everyone with open arms. So to that extent, we sort of say that we help all parents get more plants on the plate. So whether that's things like a lot of recipes that we have on our website, some tips to help your kids, you know, eat more vegetables, some picky eating strategies. And then for parents who uh, perhaps are thinking a little bit more nutritionally, as far as, you know, how do we do this with either vegan, vegetarian, or or some aspect of that in a plant-based child or pregnancy, really getting sort of that evidence-based advice, because I think a lot of a lot of parents that we've talked to over the years have sort of said, you know, their pediatrician, I mean, necessarily isn't super well versed in this or they don't really have a place to turn to. And and we want to be the place that says, you know, here are the nutrition considerations that you you need to keep in mind. And here are the things that we want to really make sure are top of mind for you when it comes to feeding their kids this way. Yeah, I really love that approach. I think that um, there's a lot, you know, being put out on social media that just kind of makes parents feel bad. And, and in full transparency, I look back to my early days of blogging and I feel like what I wrote was so unrealistic, you know, and it, and and you never want to come from that place of of shaming parents. You just want everything to be approachable and easy for them and realistic for their lives. So that's that's really great. Um, so let's talk about plant-based diets. What does the research show about the benefits of following a plant-based plan? Yeah. So, you know, in in general, we we see a lot of benefits in kids that we see in adults, right? So, you know, we we can't look at kids and look at risk of, let's say, like cancer. Um, or type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease in the same way that we can with adult populations because obviously kids are, are much different. They don't have sort of those those decades of lifestyle habits in front of them. But 
uh, in general, we see that they have similar tendencies. So for instance, for type two diabetes, uh, they do have lesser rates in plant-based kids. The same thing is true with sort of those earlier developments of cardiovascular disease. So, you know, increased fatty streaks in the, the arteries, uh, hardening of the arteries. Some of that can start sort of in the first decade or so of life. Um, and plant-based kids have much lower levels of that than omnivore or omnivorous kids. Um, the, you know, the big thing that we see is really what the diet is made up of, right? So, you know, various studies have shown that uh, plant-based kids typically eat more fruits, they eat more vegetables, they eat more fiber uh, and important micronutrients alongside things like vitamin C and folate. And they also tend to eat less unhealthy things like sweets, you know, ultra processed foods and saturated fat rich foods. And we really feel like that is one of the the biggest benefits for all of us to sort of adapt eating more plant-based for our kids, especially because, you know, flavor, taste, uh, flavor preferences are really introduced early in life. And, you know, a lot of us can sort of think back to the foods we were raised on as, as young kids. The likelihood is a lot of those foods are still things that we feel really comforted towards and really enjoy even now as adults. And the same thing is true with kids. So, the more that we can sort of present these foods as part of the cultural family normal uh, foods, the more likely they are to enjoy them later in life. And, you know, when we look at sort of the the overall data on on how not only kids but adults eat, you know, currently the CDC says that one in 10 of us gets enough fruits and vegetables every day. One in 10 gets enough fiber uh, you know, the average American's diet is about 60% uh, ultra processed food. So the more that we can try to say, okay, you know, it's not about being perfect, but where can we add more plant-based foods, knowing that obviously so many of those foods are going to be rich in these micronutrients, and hopefully also that will crowd out some of the ultra processed foods that just tend to be so, you know, prolific in the in the diet currently. Yeah, it's really hard too as your kids get older. You, you can start them off when they're babies and toddlers on a whole foods diet. And then once they go to school, it's like you almost want to throw your hands up, right? You know, I, I know I struggle with that with my own kids, and I, but I just keep on plugging away. You know, they fight me on it, or totally. one in particular does. But, um, you know, if you just, if you set the stage and you have those healthy habits at home, I, I feel like they will just kind of follow suit, even if they do push back. Well, and, you know, listen, let's let's be real. Right. I mean, my kids aren't shoving kale, you know, down, yeah. <laughs> down their throats. You know, they they see ice cream. They know what's up. So, I, I mean, we're we're not talking about this, you know, child that, you know, d- d- doesn't eat any chocolate or sweets or never has ultra processed foods. We're just saying that the, the more these foods become commonplace, you know, the more these foods are introduced, even if it takes years and years for our kids to accept these foods. The research shows that the foods that are more commonly introduced in early childhood tend to be foods that kids accept later in life. You know, we're, we're also born with this real preference for sweet foods. It's sort of how we evolved, right? Sweetness tends to mean less poison, less bitter foods. Breast milk is naturally very sweet. Sweet foods also tend to be a very high source of calories, which is essential for survival. And, you know, some research shows that bitter aversion can can really, you know, exist until, you know, the first decade or so of life. So until the teenage years. So, 
you know, it's it's extra hard for kids to really sort of love those bitter flavors. But again, just sort of introducing them without pressure. We just think that the research continues to show the the benefits. And again, it's it's about that progress, right? It's about just introducing a little bit more plants where possible. My kids love junk food too, you know? Yeah. So it's 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 about sort of realness in the world. We went to a birthday party yesterday and, you know, my kid ate a slice of cake and a cupcake. Great. <laughs> you know, that's not a normal sort of Sunday snack, but it's also the real world, right? And kids have to enjoy food. And, and I also don't want our kids to feel like they're restricted or, you know, moms looking over their shoulder being like, oh my gosh, you're eating that. I mean, that's not fun either, right? Like we we have to raise healthy food kids, but also kids who have healthy relationships with food too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And 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 so when we talk about plant-based diets, I think that a lot of people think, well, because you're not getting meat, you're not getting certain nutrients. Are there, mm-hmm. debunk some of those myths for me. Yeah. So, you know, listen, nutrients are important, right? So when we talk about things like iron, things in zinc, they they are rich in in animal foods, especially things like meat um, or even certain certain times of seafood. So when you take those foods away, then, the, you know, the natural question is, well, where are you going to get iron? And And that's a reasonable question, right? Iron is really important for overall growth and development. We do need to ensure our kids are getting enough. Um, and it's also true that plant-based foods have what's called non-heme iron, and the, the iron that's found in animal foods is called heme, and non-heme iron found in plant foods is harder to absorb. Now, there are likely some benefits in that because iron regulation is easier in a non-heme diet, so meaning that too much iron in general is not great, just like too little isn't great, so we sort of want to find that Goldilocks approach. but. Uh, That also means for plant-based dieters, they likely need more iron than the RDA. Uh, The good news is that iron is abundant in a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet. So whole grains, beans, uh, leafy greens tend to be sort of the the best sources of iron. Uh, But you also need to make sure that your kids are eating those foods. You need to make sure they're eating them often. And we also know that pairing that with the source of vitamin C can increase absorption from non-heme iron uh, about three to six times, depending on, you know, the research and how much vitamin C you're adding. So, you know, those are sort of education points that uh, a plant-based parent does need to sort of understand. It's not to say that it's impossible to get enough iron. Uh, you know, we I have my kids tested their iron every year, mine as well. We're all, you know, fine and, and don't have any iron deficiency issues. But you know, for for some kids, let's say, and this is true for omnivorous kids as well, because iron deficiency anemia is the most common uh, nutrient deficiency for kids of all ages, not just plant-based. But, you know, it may need to discuss maybe an iron supplementation every now and then, depending on the the overall diet. It may need to make sure that you're giving, you know, some iron fortified grains uh, as part of the diet, you know, and I think that sometimes when people hear this, they think things like, oh, it can't be natural, but we're just talking about nutrients, right? So I don't know a ton of kids that eat a lot of beef either. You know, chicken is a is not a very good source of iron. Uh, fish sticks aren't a good source of iron. So, you know, and, and I say that in, in joking, but meaning like just because you're an omnivorous kid or raised an omnivorous kid does not necessarily mean they're automatically going to meet these nutrient needs either, right? So it all it comes down to just overall education and and making sure that we're doing the the best we can with what we've got. So, you know, we 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 love sort of the 
the conversation around, you know, fortification where it's possible, supplements, especially considering, you know, all types of of kids and access points and, and understanding too that, you know, I may eat, let's say, quinoa or, um, you know, farro or kale because I like them, but also because I know the nutrient profile, but that doesn't work with my two-year-old. You know, like she's not downing food because she thinks like, oh, this is a great source of vitamin K. <laughs> I haven't gotten enough vitamin K today. Like she only eats foods if it tastes good. And so, you know, there there are sort of that unique uh, considerations when it comes to kids, we can talk about where these nutrients are found all day long. But if the kid's not eating it, you know, that's that's a problem. And it's also a conversation that we sometimes have with our plant-based parents, especially with things like allergies or really picky kids to really either lean heavily on supplements or considering, you know, adding in these animal-based foods, especially things like iron because it's going to be easier to absorb it. It's not a very popular opinion with a lot of our families, but it is something that nutritionally, I think as dietitians, it's just sort of, you know, important to discuss sometimes. Right. Yeah. Those are all great points. And and so in that same vein, can it be safe to raise a vegan child? Yeah. So, you know, the currently the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of uh, Nutrition and Dietetics and the Canadian Pediatric Society, they all say that it is uh, perfectly safe and likely beneficial uh, for all stages of life to be on a plant-based diet. But, you know, that sort of well-planned is is really emphasized and, and for good reason. You know, just sort of the things I was talking about before. We, we work with lots of vegan families who have healthy, thriving pregnancies, you know, thriving babies, Great. Um, the same is also true with, you know, omnivorous kids and pregnancies. If it's not well planned, it can be lacking in a lot of nutrients. So I, I don't think it's accurate to just sort of assume because someone is eating one diet pattern that automatically it's going to be deficient or automatically it's going to be, you know, covering all of the bases, um, especially for sort of considering the average kid's diet, which is very high in ultra-processed foods, likely missing a lot of the micronutrients. You know, if you're only getting one serving, let's say, a fruit a day, you're going to be missing a lot of those things. It's going to be very low in fiber. So, you know, it's it, we have to sort of look at the diet in in its entirety, but especially for our vegan families, there are a few things they really do need to be aware of that maybe aren't so important necessarily in an omnivorous diet because it's just easier to cover some of those gaps. You know, B12, for instance, is found only in animal products. Well, if you're not serving any animal products, you need to make sure that you're giving a source of that. You know, um, DHA is found primarily in fatty fish, some eggs. If you're not serving those things, that's fine. You can get them through supplements. But again, you need to, to be aware of those things. So you know, we we sort of say that education is power, uh, whatever sort of dietary pattern that you're following. And, you know, it's also why we take a very inclusive approach to our education, because, you know, again, it, it also comes down to what is the child um, able to eat, interested in eating and also family resources and access. Great. Well, Alex, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about one of the most common questions, and that's about plant based milks. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time, and the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. 
When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years, and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last, and they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com shop and click on Vitamix. So Alex, let's talk about plant-based milks because there's been so many brands that have come out with different options over the past few years. And so can, are these good for toddlers and kids and, and what should parents look for? Yeah. So, you know, the, the biggest question that I think needs to be evaluated with any sort of product or nutrition sort of thought is who is this for and compared to what, right? So when we're talking about, let's say, non-dairy milk uh, in particular, there is a difference on who it's best for and what sort of things would be recommended when we're talking, let's say, about a toddler or maybe a woman who is pregnant rather than someone who is trying to lose weight, right? So for instance, let's say almond milk. Almond milk is very low in calories, about 30 calories per cup, about one gram of protein, uh, pretty low in fat, depending on the brand. Uh, So, you know, that might be a good option for someone who was trying to, let's say, you know, be mindful of overall caloric intake, but not gonna be great for someone who's trying to, to grow Uh, So, you know, toddlers, kids, pregnant women. So that's why we recommend choosing something that has a little bit more uh, overall nutrition, be that protein, fat, and calories uh, for our periods of optimal growth. So that would be things like soy milk is sort of our preferred option because nutritionally it's very similar to cow's milk, especially when you consider the amino acid profile. And then after that, pea milk. Um, oat milk, uh, can be fine, especially if we're working with some, uh, allergies, but the, the one thing about oat milk is it tends to be a little bit lower in protein. Now, protein's not a huge concern, uh, for the average child because they tend to, to get likely more than we think. But again, if we're talking about really selective picky eaters, then, you know, you, you may want to consider that as well when you're choosing, let's say a milk that has a little bit less protein uh, and make sure that's getting in the diet somewhere else. The last thing I'll say about non-dairy milks is again, compared to what? So, you know, cow's milk does have some really great nutrition, right? It's got vitamin D, it has vitamin A, it has B12, it has iodine, it has calcium. So if we're doing a substitute, we need to make sure that we're getting in those nutrients somewhere else, right? So that's how we really like a fortified non-dairy milk. Uh, fortified non-dairy milks usually contain as much calcium, if not more, than cow's milk. Uh, same is true with vitamin D. Some brands do add in B12, although we do think that it's sort of the safer option just to ensure that all kids get 
uh, B12 supplement if there are any sort of spectrum on the on the plant based diet. And then the last thing to consider is iodine. So iodine is usually found in dairy and seafood. And then again, in fortified products like an iodized salt. Uh, interesting little tidbit is that iodine does not naturally uh, is not naturally found in cow's milk. It's there because of the way they sterilize the udders and the way they sterilize the equipment so that iodized solution gets into the milk, which is why dairy is a quote unquote good source of iodine. Um, but iodine is also really important for thyroid health. Uh, so, you know, we we do recommend cooking with iodized salt in the diet if you're plant based and or uh, adding in iodine into the diet, either in drops or a lot of multivitamins will have iodine. So again, you know, we we need to sort of look at not necessarily the food source, but the nutrients, right? So when we're talking about nutrition, I think it's always important to say compared to what and who is it for, and that will help us sort of come up with the best answer, which is why for us, for toddlers and really preschool kids too, soy milk, pea milk, fortified is going to be the best option. Great. And so on your website and in your book, you talk about the PB3 plate model. Can you describe what that is and why that is important for families? Yeah. So the, the, the PB3 plate model is really trying to make this as easy as possible for all parents. So what we do is we break out instead of saying, you know, you, you need, let's say, two tablespoons of this or, you know, X amount of this every day. That can get really confusing even for the best meaning parents. So our PB3 plate model is broken up into thirds. So a third of it is legumes, nuts, and seeds. A third of it is fruits and vegetables. And the third of it is grains and starches. And we essentially say, if you're serving one food from these categories at most meals, you're going to meet a lot of this nutrition that we're talking about here. So, you know, you can go through our book, our website, our Instagram, and obviously we talk a lot about various nutrients, but Knowing if you're serving a you know a serving of grains or starches, a serving of legumes, nuts and seeds, and a serving of fruits and vegetables at most meals, you're going to cover a lot of it. Sort of on the side of our PB3 plate, we have a cup of fortified soy milk, and then supplements that we believe are important for uh, strict plant-based eaters. So things like B12, vitamin D, and DHA. But other than that, it's really sort of focusing on what nutrition, what sort of food group should be on the plate most of the time. Great. And so for moms who are just starting solids with their babies, whether they're introducing purees or they're doing baby-led weaning, what are the best steps for them to follow a plant-based diet? Yeah, so really at, at this stage, so we're talking about, you know, maybe five, six months when parents are starting to complementary feed, we're still going to be getting a lot of nutrition from either breast milk or formula or both. Uh, so the one nutrient that we're going to need to focus on sort of during this time is iron. And that's because in utero, babies' iron stores are stored. And then they start to sort of wean uh, after they're born. Breast milk is, is fairly low in iron. It's highly absorbable iron, but it's still fairly low uh, until they're about, you know, five, six months, depending on a lot of factors. So, you know, how long baby was was in mom. So if she was born or he was born prematurely, that may affect iron stores, uh, mom's iron status, whether or not there was delayed cord clamping, et cetera. So typically we sort of say four to six months. At that time is when baby needs to start getting iron from other food sources. So um, that's how at any sort of baby, we like to focus on iron-rich foods. So for, for plant-based and really all babies, 
Uh, lots of things are to be considered. Uh, maybe it's an iron fortified cereal. Maybe it's an oatmeal. Uh, maybe it's a bean. If you're doing baby led weaning, that can be sort of in a bean patty uh, or like a homemade sort of like lentil meatball in, you know, a, a baby that's being maybe more pureed or spoon fed. That can be like a homemade hummus or a bean dip. Um, you know, any of these, again, sort of that, that, that whole grain or beans, lentil sort of foods are going to be some of the best sources of iron for, for plant-based kids. Um, even, you know, again, we think about sort of omnivorous babies. Most babies at six months old aren't pounding steak, right? And so <laughs> we, get, we have to, and that's why, you know, sort of this conversation around iron-fortified cereal, for some reason in the baby-led weaning community, it's like vilified. And it's crazy because just six tablespoons of iron-fortified cereal, whether that's an oat-based cereal or even like a multigrain cereal, can meet iron requirements for, for a six-month-old. And that's not that much food compared to, let's say, six ounces of steak, which is almost what you would need to, to meet that. So, you know, when we're talking about how do we maximize this nutrition, again, you know, I think we should all be saying, oh, wow, I'm really thankful that these iron-fortified oat-based cereals are around because they make it easy. And again, sort of going back to this period of optimal growth and development, iron needs are really important as baby starts to grow, as their brain starts to grow. And, you know, there there is a point where being iron deficient for too long can really become damaging. So, you know, we, we don't want to say any sort of food is vilified, especially for families who have a hard time maybe with various budget and access, an iron-fortified base cereal is a really easy way to sort of meet that need so baby can also focus on introducing other foods. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up lentils. I when I have two daughters, they're 10 and 8, and when the oldest one was a baby and I started her on solids, I would make a large you know, batch of lentils and then puree it for her. And I really feel like today that is why my children still love to eat lentils mm -hmm. so yeah it's so important it's such a great way to get iron yeah we did a lot of that and with my kids too we did a lot of like you know I, I call them like bean sticks it was basically like you know pureed beans some grains I would like shape them into balls or fingers and kind of like bake them and it was great I mean they loved them um so yeah that's great so I love always to talk about evidence-based ways for getting kids to eat veggies, because I think that there's just too much content out there centered around sneaking vegetables, making them into art projects, which is not realistic. And, you know, we really have to focus on the research. So what do we know about the best ways to get kids to eat their vegetables? Yeah. So um, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like I mean, I think if you talk to most parents, this is one of the like pain points uh, when it comes to feeding kids. And, you know, I think, again, it comes back to the research, but also the why. Right. You know, we sort of talked about this a little bit uh, earlier, but we have a natural aversion to to bitter foods that has likely allowed us to continue to survive and evolve. And so understanding that it is going to be harder when your kids, let's say, taste Brussels sprouts or broccoli, it's going to taste different to them than it is for you because they have different sort of taste receptors. So, you know, I think it's when you talk to a lot of adults, they say things like, oh, I used to hate, let's say, I don't know, kale when I was a kid or Brussels sprouts. Kale probably wasn't that popular 20 years ago. Uh, and now they love it. And a lot of that is, yes, exposure, but also because your taste changed. Now, the one way to sort of get around this is adding salt. So 
salt tends to help mask uh, those bitter flavors. So when you're introducing, and, and this is sort of more a little bit for like toddler kids, we don't want to be overly salting our, our baby's foods because we don't want them to have been a preference for, for high sodium, high, you know, salty foods. But uh, when they become a little bit older, adding in just a little bit of salt, even a little bit of fat helps to mask some of those bitter receptors. And so the food doesn't taste quite as bitter. So that's sort of one way we say to parents, you know, serving, let's say, just like steamed broccoli might not be as appetizing to a child. But if maybe you put a little bit of, you know, butter or plant-based butter or a little bit of salt, a little bit of olive oil, sort of things to help mask that bitterness, that can be one way that they accept it a little bit more. The other evidence-based thing that we see really comes down to consistent exposure. And I think that is probably the most infuriating response to a parent because nothing is, I think, more annoying when you spend the time to cook this really healthy meal and you give it to your child and they push it away or they throw it on the floor. I don't think many parents are going to be like, oh, great, I'll just pick the exact same meal for them in a week for exposure. I mean, I, I know that this is sort of like the most annoying answer in the world. Um, but unfortunately, it is what the research shows, sort of that continuous exposure, even if they're not eating the food, the more they see it sort of in front of them, again, the more it sort of becomes part of this like family culture of the foods that we eat. The research shows that even when kids go through a picky period, they're likely to return to those foods afterwards. Um, I have a four-year-old who I feel like is in, like the throes of like picky eating. I mean, we, it's it can be a challenge some days foods he used to love a year ago, like he won't even put near his lips. But, you know, I continue to to offer where I can. I continue to, sh- to sh- hopefully, you know, show those foods in different lights, especially lights that aren't uh, high pressure. So for instance, when we go to the grocery store, you know, I have him pick out the broccoli for me, or I have him sort of, you know, say what kind of vegetable we, we, he wants to eat at the store. Now, granted, he always picks radishes and he will never eat them. This has been like two years in a row. <laughs> but at least to me, it's like, OK, like you, you get excited about them in the store. It's it's sort of these these touch points. Right. I think that the, mo- the, the biggest thing I think parents can take away is the more touch points that we have with our kids around these types of foods, the likely they are to seem normal and not scary once that sort of picky eating pattern is uh, over. The, the last thing I'll say about picky eating is it's very normal. It is uh, it, it has a lot to do not only with taste preference, but also sort of our kids becoming more autonomous. Right. So a toddler finally deciding, oh, wow, I'm in charge of what kind of foods I put in my body. That's really exciting and really powerful. And, you know, in some ways we want to really nurture that. Right. Like, yes, that's right. You decide what goes into your body. You decide how much food you need. These are all really great sort of intuitive things we can help to teach our kids, which is why, you know, pressuring foods, kids to eat various foods kind of goes against that. It's also why hiding foods goes against that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm the first one to puree, you know, some beans or some carrots into a tomato sauce. But I do tell my kids it goes it's going in there. And the reason is because, again, those contact points, right, that constant exposure If the only way they've ever been exposed to kale is pureed into a smoothie or pureed into brownies or whatever sort of else people are trying to do to sort of sneak these foods in, then kids don't get to see what it looks like. They don't know how it's supposed to look and taste on its own. And so after the picky eating period is over, 
these foods are going to all still seem really novel, even if they've been sort of eating them and sneaking them in for, for years and years. So I sort of say you can do a both and approach, you know, like I make a kale smoothie with my kids. They grab the kale from the freezer. They help put it in the smoothie. They would never eat like a kale salad or sauteed kale, but they love a kale smoothie. Great. Right. Even though it's not the same texture or taste as sort of having that individual vegetable, it still is a contact point. It still is an exposure point, And therefore, it's not the, quite the same thing as like sneaking it in. So there, there's some nuance in this, but, you know, hopefully that will help parents uh, who are listening. Yeah, those are all amazing tips. And and I think that getting your kids in the kitchen is really one of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat healthy. And then also having family meals together as much as you can. I mean, it can just be three nights a week or it could yeah. be breakfast or a snack, right? Like it's just so important to just model those healthy eating habits for your kids. And And one point I'll just sort of say on family meals is the research shows it's just one other person. So that can mean, you know, like you said, breakfast, right? Like I know in my family, it's way easier for us all to eat breakfast than it is dinner some nights, especially if my husband works late. Uh, And that also means that even just my kids eating together is a quote unquote family meal because it's one other person. Or if someone's listening to this and it's just a caregiver that's eating with your child, that also counts as a family meal. It doesn't have to be sort of this like Norman Rockwell you know, like picturesque, like we're all like passing the, you know, the, the the sides around the table every night. You know, that's also maybe not realistic, but as long as someone else is eating and, and a lot of that is because one, it's again, sort of those like, you know, culture, um, this like sort of time together, but also you're seeing what someone else is eating, right? There is a lot of, of positive peer pressure that can happen when your child sees someone else, whether it's a sibling or a caretaker or a parent eating that food. And that's also why when we talk to parents or counsel clients, we'll say things like, how are you around that food? Because if you're expecting your child to eat something that you won't, that's a really tough nonverbal to get around because your child is way smart. You know, they're going to look at you and be like, well, you're not eating that or you're eating something different. So why do I have to? So the more that we can also sort of eat the same foods and show our kids and sort of have those nonverbal cues as we eat, like "Mm, this is good without being annoying or obnoxious, but just sort of let them see you enjoy the food. Those are all sort of positive signs to them that, oh, this food is okay. This food is safe. And maybe at one point they're going to try putting it into their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when my kids were really young, I mean, they were just toddlers and I would make a salad for myself every single day for lunch. And then eventually they just wanted to try it because they were so curious and they wanted, Mm -hmm. they want to do everything you do. So, you know, when, when parents, if they're trying to raise their kids plant-based, vegetarian, vegan, and they, you know, they have their annual well visit and the pediatrician asks about diet, because that's one of the required questions. Um, how can they deal with, oftentimes I think that they may get pushback from pediatricians and, you know, pediatricians only get about 24 hours of nutrition education as it is. So maybe they're not the best source to talk to, but how can they deal with that resistance? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is really, really common. Uh, we hear that often from our community. Uh, the one thing that we like to say is I think the more, uh, empowered parents are because of maybe the outside learning that they've done, it feels easier to have those conversations with your pediatrician when they maybe, even if they're not quite on board, maybe just don't understand or don't know all of the research. It's really helpful to sort of fight, you know, misinformation or not understanding with facts to say, well, you know, here's sort of the 
the recommendations from the AAP on this. And we we try to do that as much as possible in our book to really sort of give parents almost like a blueprint to say, you know, if you sort of even skim this and, and pick up our PBJ bottom lines, or if you read the book, hopefully you'll come away with enough understanding about the things that you need to focus on for overall, you know, healthy growth and development when it comes to our kids, that when your pediatrician does have questions, you have answers. Um, I think it, when it gets tricky is when parents don't know, you know, and, and listen, like I know it's hard to talk to your pediatrician. I love our pediatrician. And I remember there was some times in the beginning where you just sort of get flustered because it's this person who has this expertise and this sort of like, you know, white coat coming in and and challenging you. And, you know, I I know sort of the the research pretty well, but it, it does even sort of take a moment to sort of say like, OK, here's here's sort of, you know, the, the current body of, of evidence. And, you know, I feel OK doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I say that I share that because I know it's hard. You know, I know it's it's tricky to sort of go go toe to toe with a, a pediatrician on things. But I think in general, the more parents feel empowered and hopefully have the education that they need, um, the, the easier it is to have those conversations when the pediatricians perhaps aren't as well versed. Yeah, that's wonderful. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about your favorite tips for meal planning and making this all really easy for parents. If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. But through the years as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So Alex, talk to me about your favorite tips for planning plant-based meals and snacks for kids. Yeah, my, uh, so actually, let me say this. This is hard, right? And I say that because I feel like sometimes, you know, on Instagram especially, we can see, you know, these like family meals that are like so ornate and beautiful. And it's like, oh, wow, that must be nice. Um, sometimes my kids get a piece of avocado toast and, you know, a can of, of beans and some fruit and that's dinner. And that is totally okay. Um, when I try to meal plan and make it a little bit easier for, for my family, I will say the biggest tip for me is what I call morning meal prep. So, uh, I tend to get home from the office around five, which tends to be like the meltdown point of both of my kids as far as like hunger. So I don't have sort of the the luxury of, you know, spending 30, 40 minutes in the kitchen as soon as I get home to make dinner, which means for me, I need to do as much prep as possible ahead of time. So I call it morning meal prep. And that is in the morning when I have a little bit more time, my kids are usually eating breakfast together. Um, I'm in there with them in the kitchen. That's when I'll sort of cut up the veggies for dinner that night. I may, you know, even like start to advance cook some of the grains or soak them or put them in the instant pot at least to like be really easy, ready to go when I get home. Cut the tofu, marinate it, whatever sort of we're having for dinner that night. That probably takes me, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes depending on the meal. But that way, when I get home, I call it sort of like assemble. If my kids are in the kitchen with me, great. I can usually be holding one of them and everything is sort of chopped and done. So I can just sort of quickly put it together and make it. And I will say that tip 
has been a complete game changer for me as far as getting healthy food on the table um, at that time. Because I feel like, again, you know, my my kids are tired and they're hungry at five. And if I don't have an immediate sort of plan on exactly what I'm going to do, it's likely going to be a cereal night or a avocado toast night for dinner. And do you, you mentioned Instant Pot. Do you use a crock pot as well? I do. I, I love my Instant yeah. Pot. I will say I, I was kind of like, I, I feel like when it came out, my mother-in-law was like really into it. And I was like, I don't need another appliance. Like, <laughs> I don't have room for this. And I love it. I love it so much. I, I use it a lot to cook grains. Um, one, because I feel like I, I don't burn it, you know, like, yeah, there's been a lot of times I'm like scraping off rice or, or faro from the bottom of pan. Cause I forgot about it or walked away or got busy or dealt with a tantrum or whatever it was. And my instant pot like does it for me. It's also amazing for soups. Um, we probably eat lentil tacos at least once a week. It's like the one lentil meal that both my kids like scarf up. Um, and I make them in my instant pot. It literally takes me like 10 minutes, not even like maybe five minutes. So all the ingredients in it's like 17 minutes, set it, forget it. And it just, again, like, I feel like I'm at the period of my life phase of my life where I need easy, like, yes, I want healthy, but I also want like things to be as easy and convenient as possible. And I think any appliance or any sort of like trick that makes that happen is a huge win for me. And the instant pot is definitely that slow cooker. Yes, but not as much as my uh, instant pot. That's great. So we don't really often talk about serving vegetables for breakfast, but I think it's a great way to make sure your kids are getting the nutrition they need in. And there are so many creative ways. What are some ways that you like to get veggies in a breakfast? Yeah. So, you know, I think this is a great place that you can uh, help to include your kids. Right. So asking them, you know, first of all, what are their favorite vegetables? Right. So a lot of times you sort of if they're not used to ever having a vegetable at breakfast and then all of a sudden you serve one, it it probably isn't going to go over well if it's just like a side of steamed beets, you know, but I think that the more that we can say like, oh, you already like this already. Great. Let's add that in a fun way to your breakfast options. So for instance, my kids love smoothies. That to me is a really easy way to get those nutrients in, especially things they're not that fond of like leafy greens Um, You know, I already mentioned it, but my kids love running to the freezer and grabbing the bag of kale or collards, whatever else I have stuck in there and add them to the freezer. And they'll they'll easily sort of drink that down in a smoothie. That's great. Um, My both my kids, especially my son, loves seeing foods in different colors. So we're we're big oatmeal fans in the morning, um, but he really loves when we add in like grated beets uh, to the oatmeal because it turns it like a really pretty pink color. Um, It sort of like softens and cooks down into the oats. You really don't taste it, but it's a really beautiful, you know, sort of bowl. So that's sort of a fun way that we get in that. Um, We do the same thing with cauliflower. So rice, cauliflower, pumpkin, um, you know, again, sort of these these foods that can easily be added into uh, meals they already love. And then the other thing that we really like, I like savory breakfast a lot. So I'll do like a tofu scramble and we'll add in various kinds of veggies, almost like a veggie hash. Uh, My kids don't usually love that on its own, but they definitely will eat it if it's wrapped up in a tortilla like a burrito. Those are great ideas. I love the beets and the oatmeal. Yeah, we have a recipe on our um, on our Instagram page, but it's really pretty. It's like this beautiful, like pink bowl. So yeah, my, my kids love colors. <laughs> That's great. So I think one of the myths about plant-based eating is that it can get expensive. And and I found that really it's, it can be a lot more affordable because beans, lentils, super cheap, right? But if you are obviously 
adding more fruits and vegetables into your diet, it, it can definitely get expensive. And in recent months, prices at the grocery store are just astronomical. So mm-hmm. what are some ways that people can, you know, eat plant-based on a budget? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, right? Like the the staples can be less expensive. Uh, where it tends to, I think, get a little bit more pricey is all of these like convenient alternatives. And, you know, I we love them. We eat them, you know, sometimes in our in our food. So things like, you know, seitan sausages or fake cheeses, you know, et cetera. Those all tend to be higher cost than their animal based counterparts. So, you know, if you're only sort of making those a big part of your diet, it's likely going to be a lot more expensive. But things like whole grains, things like beans, things like lentils tend to be a lot cheaper. Um, so I think including those more often is a is a good switch. Um, the other thing I will say is that not to be afraid of frozen or canned uh, fruits and vegetables, especially things like frozen. You know, when we think about like overall health and, you know, phytochemical and nutrient compounds of fruits and vegetables in particular, there's sort of this like apex of ripeness. So if you imagine like a bell curve, as you sort of ripen a food, it gets to be more nutritious, more nutrient dense. And then as you go down and it over ripens, it, it loses those nutrients. Well, the vast majority of frozen food, because it can't continue to ripen after it's been processed, is frozen at sort of that quote unquote peak, that like top of the bell curve of ripeness. So it's going to contain, in some instances, more, quote unquote, nutrients than even the fresh counterpart, because, you know, that fresh counterpart could have been overripe or underripe, depending on what it is. So not to be afraid of frozen fruits and vegetables. They also tend to be a lot cheaper because you're not dealing with the spoils that you are the same way in shipping foods, fresh foods to the grocery store. So we do a lot of frozen fruits in smoothies. Um, I make an oatmeal most mornings and I stir in like frozen wild blueberries, that frozen rice cauliflower I was talking about before. Uh, Those are all really easy ways to get those nutrients in. Um, And again, a lot less expensive than their fresh counterparts. And you don't have to worry about them going bad in your house either. Uh, Canned fruits and vegetables, I think, get a really bad rap, but they don't have to, especially for choosing things that are lower in sodium and also packed in water or even juice, right? So if I'm, let's say, serving um, like mandarin oranges, I would try to choose them served in water and then you can either rinse them, even the ones that are served in juice, as long as you're draining them, you're actually getting a lot of that out. Uh, And then any sort of like canned vegetables, I just usually rinse, just sort of rinse off some of the sodium, but again, really economical and really accessible. So these are a lot of the foods you're going to find more often in various places in the country where it's harder maybe to find fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, eating healthier shouldn't have to be a pain point. Um, It shouldn't have to be sort of something that's only uh, exclusive to more affluent um, families. It should be really accessible to everyone. And I think the more that we can sort of destigmatize some of these kind of foods and show how accessible and how healthy they are, are, um, the easier those batches are going to be to sort of come to, to everyone. Those are great tips. So, you know, Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away. And how can parents plan a plant-based Thanksgiving and also deal with resistance from family members who are not plant-based? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
I mean, I so let's take the first one uh, first. We do what we call a sides Thanksgiving. So, you know, I think the sides are the best part anyways. I know some plant-based families will serve an alternative to turkey, right? So they'll do like a seitan-based or, um, you know, other kind of main quote-unquote meal. My family just doesn't love those things. So we tend to just skip that all together and do more of the sides, which is a, a fun way. Um, you know, I'm sure this year my four-year-old is probably only going to eat uh, the mashed potatoes and the corn, and that's <laughs> fine too. Uh, when it comes to pushing back from family members, I think the more that you can have these conversations away from the dinner table is really helpful. I think anytime that we are in front of food and eating, you know, food is really personal. So the moment you start telling so-and-so, well, you know, that food has this, this, and this, it's likely not going to come across a very welcoming message, right? No one wants to hear that the foods that you love are harmful or not healthy or that you're somehow wrong in, in, in wanting to eat them, right? These are really sort of emotionally charged conversations. So I think the more that you can keep it uh, not attacking anyone and their diet and just sort of saying, hey, you know, if this is your first time uh, eating this way at Thanksgiving or if this is your 10th time, you know, and, and perhaps you've had issues in the past, it can be helpful before Thanksgiving just to sort of say, um, you know, just as a reminder, we eat plant based. We're going to make sure to bring our own version of X. You don't have to worry about us. Um, you know, it sounds like the menu has a lot of options we're already going to love. If you wouldn't mind using vegetable broth in your mashed potatoes, that would be really, you know, welcomed or whatever you feel like you might need to sort of, you know, remind anyone to do. And then, you know, eat what you can. It's one meal, right? Like I've had Thanksgiving meals where I've eaten again, just like a few things and whatever, right? I mean, right. it's it's not necessarily even about that. And I, I cook. So if I want to go home the next day and, and make a feast, I can. I think the more that you can sort of help out your host if you're going somewhere. So every year we go to my in-laws most times for Thanksgiving and I bring our sides, you know, and it's just easier. It's easier for my mother-in-law. I don't mind doing it. It makes her feel, I think, less stress because she doesn't necessarily want to get it wrong. And that's great. And we always have a really beautiful, you know, meal and we sort of know the foods that that we can eat and that we love. And a lot of times people eat them as well. So I, I think the more that you can sort of have these conversations uh, ahead of time tends to be tends to be a lot more helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that you can also inspire other people to see that, you know, you can eat healthy and delicious food in a plant based way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, one year I brought my our mushroom gravy and like everyone ate it. And we were like, oh, well, I only brought enough for like, you know, my husband and I at that point, not thinking like we everyone would want it. And it was like, OK, so next year I'm in charge of gravy for everybody. So um, your book, The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler, we'll link to that in the show notes. I'd love to hear what your favorite recipes are in the book. Yeah. So uh, for our sort of baby led weaning crew, I love our lentil pizza strips. Uh, I actually make them for myself. They're really good. It's essentially like a a cast iron lentil, red lentil um, crust. And then you put on uh, tomato sauce, pizza sauce, marinara sauce. And then we do like a homemade uh, vegan parm with cashews, nutritional yeast. Um, You know, if you're predominantly plant-based or flexitarian, you could add in a little bit of regular Parmesan or cheese. But Anyways, it's a really good recipe for not only kids, but for adults too. 
Um, we also have in there a sheet pan uh, barbecue tofu bowl. That is a huge hit in my house. We eat those pretty often. And then I also love our vegan enchilada casserole. My kids are really into like black beans. They're, they're not necessarily into a lot of beans, but they will eat black beans and they love them. So that's sort of one that makes a constant rotation in my house just because it's packed with so many yummy veggies and beans. It's got like a really nice sauce, not too heavily spiced, but still tastes really good. That's great. So Alex, thank you so much for your time today. You have so much great information and real realistic tips for parents. And so where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so you can find us on our website, plantbasedjuniors.com. Over on Instagram, we are at plantbasedjuniors. We're the same thing on other social networks as well, but really active over on Instagram. And then our book is called The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler, uh, which you can find really wherever books are sold. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I was thrilled to have Alex Casparo on the podcast, and I love how balanced and realistic her approach is to plant-based eating. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love it if you could go into Apple Podcasts, leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.